Spooky Science Sisters is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. You keep going out for a little bit and then I'll hear it uh, 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 and then it'll like try to like speed up and catch up to you. And then it's like, <laughs> so I don't really know what's going on, <laughs> but it's really weird. <laughs> but Well, now I know exactly what the opener to our episode is. <laughs> I'm Paige. And I'm Megan. And this is Spooky Science Sisters. Hello, you're listening to Spooky Science Sisters, a podcast where we present to you a science-based and probably very giggly discussion on all things strange and unusual. In this short and spooky episode, we are going to cover four totally unrelated topics. (laughs) (laughs) And we are super excited about it. (laughs) But also, welcome to Short and Spooky tokyo drift (laughs) we made it for some reason like i'm pretty sure you came well i know you came up with a short and spooky uh fast and furious crossover thing that we're doing and like the oh in like the first episode and i don't know why but i've been looking forward to this one the most (laughs) (laughs) i think i didn't come up with it until we did short and spooky two, and then I was like, "We have to call it too short, too spooky." <laughs> <laughs> and now we're just sticking with it. Yeah. Uh, okay, but first, <laughs> we have to do something spooky. So, Paige, was your something spooky for this episode? Um. Okay. So we have. It's called a Google Nest, right? Like yeah, the like exactly. actual okay. So we I thought so, but I don't freaking know. So we have this Google Nest and I we got it like free with our mattress. I don't even really know why we have it. We don't really use it, but it's sitting beside my bed. And um, you know, every once in a while we'll like turn music on, on it or something, mm-hmm. but like that's it. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly to like talk to it you have to say hey google and then what you're gonna say <laughs> so i'm laying in bed the other night and elliot you know tucked me in and left so it's not like he was still in the room it was just me i had started dozing off and the google nest just randomly starts talking to me oh no <laughs> and to be honest i don't even remember what it said it just scared the living shit out of me because i was like starting to like you know finally drift off to sleep mm-hmm. and then there's this woman's voice like directly behind me <laughs> yeah yeah to be fair Alexa has randomly gotten set off a few times for us, and she just got set off right now because I just said her name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was nothing more than like, huh? Oh, that was Alexa. Oh, <laughs> hi, Alexa. Media, San Francisco, officially the city and county of San Francisco. Oh. Thanks, Alexa. Alexa, stop. (laughs) Apparently, she thought we needed to know about San Francisco. (laughs) Anyway, she's been set off a few times for us and a couple times just 
Yeah, when we're being silent, and right. all of a sudden she'll start playing music or doing something weird. <laughs> and like, like I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure, just like freaked out or something. But it was mm-hmm. more just like I was like finally, you know, getting comfortable and falling asleep, and then like, holy shit, someone's behind me. <laughs> um, so that was my something spooky. But I also was looking at, you know, looking at our title, Short and Spooky Tokyo Drift. And Mm -hmm. I was like, eventually, we are going to run out of movies. And I don't think they're going to be making them fast enough that we're not going to, you know, have to figure out a different title. So, like, what are we going to do when we run out of Fast and the Furious movies? (laughs) My point is that I feel like we have a lot of runway right now with this idea. Like, I have no idea. But... I also looked it up, and there are still two official sequels on the way. So, like, part 10, they're splitting it into part one and part two. There's a spinoff, and there's two more spinoffs on the way. You see the one that they're just calling, like, women-led. Yeah, women-led one. (laughs) Wow, guys. Great. (laughs) So progressive. Uh, Yes, but I did realize in looking this up that I will have to change our first short and spooky title to The Short and The Spooky to match the first movie. (laughs) Um, Because number four, which will be the next one, is just called Fast and Furious. So our episode would just be be short and spooky. Uh, What are we going to do for the Hobbs and Shaw movie? (laughs) (laughs) I forget what that one's called. (laughs) I don't remember. I thought it was just like Fast and the Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah. Well, I'll just be like, I don't know, short and spooky, the adventures of Megan and Paige. (laughs) I don't know. But I'm like really looking forward to volume nine which will be the fate of the spooky (laughs) (laughs) i was looking i was thinking about how ridiculous are which i think will be like maybe the 11th one i don't know Mm -hmm. just s9 (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah or um five is just fast five so it's like well i guess it's just gonna be short five (laughs) (laughs) it's stupid (laughs) which i think means that we have to tell five like very short stories oh i like that (laughs) okay anyway now you all know the what's going on with short and spookies or yeah short and spookies but uh we first have to finish our something spooky so megan has anything spooky happened to you no nothing that a normal person would classify as spooky um (laughs) I'm just sort of terrified that tomorrow is my first day uh, where I have to, like, prepare a whole set of samples and run the mass spectrometer all by myself at my new job because the person who's been training me isn't going to be there. So, just, like... You're going to be great. It's terrifying for me, but... (laughs) You're going to be fine. I was like, well, fingers crossed. I don't totally screw it up. So this is me sending a message to future me five to six weeks from now editing this. Hopefully it went well. (laughs) Hopefully you're still employed. (laughs) I'm confident you will be. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm like a a little nervous about it, but also not probably as nervous as I should be. So, 
Okay. So I know that I've mentioned my porcelain doll collection on the show probably several times at this point. And I think that porcelain dolls are like really beautiful, but I know there are like a ton of people who just find them creepy. So when we started doing the short and spooky episodes, I knew that at some point I was going to have to talk about dolls. And today is the day. (laughs) It's finally happening. (laughs) Finally happening for me. (laughs) Um, So before we start talking about, you know, creepy dolls, I want to do just a very short history of the dollies. And unsurprisingly, dolls have been around forever. Uh, The wooden paddle dolls are some of the oldest dolls we know of, and those were found in ancient Egyptian tombs dated all the way back to 2000 BC. And I have a little picture of one. And like, they're super cute. I don't know. I don't know if you'd ever like seen them before. I had never seen it. And honestly, I had never really thought of what ancient dolls would look like. Yeah. It's really cool to see it. Although I also like don't want to think too hard about like why there are dolls in tombs. So we're just going to move past that. (laughs) Well, so actually, it's something that I read about um, and I'm going to talk about a little, I'm a little bit here, but so dolls were and still are more than just playthings. And and when, you know, dolls first started, I guess, making their debut, <laughs> they weren't really playthings at all uh, oh, that we okay. know of. So they were used more in like education. They were seen as messengers of gods and they were used as ritual tools. But it really isn't until 100 BC that there is really any documentation of to- dolls being used as toys. Okay, great. Uh, so that makes you feel a little better. <laughs> that does make me feel better. <laughs> um, it's not until – we don't really see like modern dolls pop up until the 15th century, and then they become even more popular as collector's items in the 20th century. And as dolls become more popular, they also become more similar looking to human children. Some can even pee, blink, or cry like a living child, (laughs) which like, great. (laughs) I remember being so excited when I was younger because I got one of those interactive baby born dolls that Mm -hmm. like you can put water in and they pee for you. I don't don't know if you ever had one of those. I did not have one. My guess is like my mom probably just thought it was too stupid, but... don't i did not have one (laughs) well i just thought it was like the tits when i was younger Uh, (laughs) i assume that like everyone that had one below a certain age like just put weird stuff inside of that doll like i can imagine they got so nasty on the you're probably not wrong i am pretty certain that i just got to a point where i just like take it in the bathtub with me and it would just like it would just like drink bath water and pee bath water and drink bath water and pee bath water over and over and over again until i got out Uh, yeah and probably like definitely wasn't moldy at all on the inside (laughs) we're gonna talk about that <laughs> uh, she was getting a bath, Megan. Uh, okay. <laughs> so children love this stuff. I mean, they and they they like dolls that you know are similar looking to kids. I mean, I think about mm-hmm. all the kids I know, and it's like they treat their baby dolls like their babies. Which I also read and I didn't really take notes on it, but I read about how even like the way that kids play with dolls has changed so much like it used to be kids would use them specifically to like learn how to sew or use them to learn how to like 
put clothes on a doll or like learn, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the woman's role. And then they would learn how to like care for a kid that way. And mm -hmm. now that like, there's like these Barbies who have careers and are like doing things outside of the standard, like, or the traditional cooking and cleaning that the females used to do that, that doll, like kids play with dolls differently now too. So I just thought that was cool. Mm -hmm. But so anyways, like I said, children love this stuff, uh, but adults don't really feel the same way. Uh, <laughs> and so there's obviously this fear of dolls that a lot of people have. Now, an extreme fear of dolls is known as pediophobia. Uh, but this is more than just your like average uneasy feeling when you see, you know, a, a group of porcelain dolls. This is like an, a true fear of them. Um, and it's also important to note that it is not the same as the fear of children, which is pedophobia. Oh. Because when I first okay. saw it, I was like, uh, I think that <laughs> I don't think that people are that are afraid of dolls are also just afraid of kids, but <laughs> it, they are different words. So pediophobia is considered to be a type of automatonophobia, which is a fear Ooh. of humanoid humanoid <laughs> figures. <laughs> Does anyone not have a fear of humanoid Right? <laughs> I feel like that's just sort of like, that's just like a general. Everyone has a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like I better not see anything humanoid walking around, but like not quite human. So I think that's just a, like, that's not a phobia. That's just reasonable <laughs> behavior. <laughs> As expected, there really isn't much research specifically on the creepiness of dolls, like, which, like I said, I expected, but I was also a little bummed by. Uh, but there yeah. is. I mean, how how are you going to research it, you know? Right. Like, it's show just, people dolls and be like, is this creepy? Is this creepy? <laughs> Yay or nay? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But there is quite a bit of research on what it is that makes something creepy, just in gen okay. general creepiness. So there is a short article that I found, and they, they talk with uh, clinical psychologist Dr. Kate Wolitsky-Taylor, um, and she says that children do not naturally fear dolls, that your fear of dolls is learned uh, from all the scary dolls that you see in pop culture, so like Annabelle, oh. Chucky, those dolls, which makes sense. Okay. But this Smithsonian Magazine article called The History of Creepy Dolls says that dolls were creepy long before they were used in movies. Oh, who knows? Who knows? So in 2013, psychologist Frank McAndrew and a grad student of his, Sarah Konecki, served... Jay Kanky. Or Kanky. We don't know. Konky. <laughs> Sarah, her grad student Sarah, sur <laughs> surveyed 1,300 people investigating what creeped them out, and collecting dolls was considered one of the creepiest hobbies. And like, I feel like I should be offended by this, but for some reason, I'm like weirdly proud of it. <laughs> like, it just sort of feels right, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. So McAndrew says that creepiness comes from uncertainty and that something that will give you a, something that will give you a creepy feeling is like when somebody is acting out of the socially accepted norm. So one example the article uses is someone standing too close to you in public. You start becoming suspicious of them, but if they never actually act in a threatening way towards you, then you just sort of write them off as creepy. <laughs> like 
They're just creepy. <laughs> what? <laughs> Disagree. Disagree. <laughs> it depends on how close they're standing. Yeah, see, it's maybe maybe some people think it's creepy. I mean, I I get that, but mostly I'm just like, jackass, get away from me. <laughs> well, I agree that like it could be creepy and that you'd be suspicious of them, but like yeah, I don't know. Let's <laughs> say <laughs> I just want people to stay away from me. Right. <laughs> Especially like right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So his point is really that he, he, so he says that he thinks that creepiness is how we respond in situations where we don't have enough information to, to really respond, but we do have enough information to put us on guard. Okay. And so using that logic, it would make sense that dolls would give us sort of an uneasy, creepy feeling because they look very similar to humans and we recognize their faces the same way we recognize human faces, yet we know that they are not human, so we don't know how to respond to them. Which is like pretty similar to the whole Uncanny Valley idea, mm-hmm. which is a concept introduced in the 1970s by Mas- Masahiro Mori. So this concept is route robots, or in our case, dolls, become more appealing as they become more human-like until they become too human-like, at which point they're so similar to us that we get this like feeling of strangeness or we get a feeling of fear. And it's mentioned um, in one of the articles that I read that dolls did not, or we don't have documentation that dolls provoked that same sense of fear in or that same fear response in the 18th and 19th century so it seems as though the more human like they got the creepier they were to people i also like hate the point which i know is just sort of like a viral clickbait sort of thing or whatever that people are like okay so we know that the uncanny valley exists and that we have this sort of just innate fear of something that looks human but is not and it's like why though like what in our like evolution did we have to be afraid of that looked like it was human right. but was not <laughs> although probably it's more just like what it was in our evolution was being wary of people that like of actual people that didn't look quite right because they were ill or something so you'd want to avoid that <laughs> you'd want to avoid that well yeah if you're like a caveman and someone's i don't know no, I don't cave know germs, all over. <laughs> germs all over <laughs> you know what i mean anyway that's probably a whole a whole other episode of this show so yeah it's fine yeah i can try to keep it this part of it short because i figured we could talk about it we could we could do a whole an entire episode, episode. on creepy like, robots right so <laughs> so i did I did find that apparently the very like like the superhuman like dolls, which I'm sure you've yeah. seen, are often referred to as reborns. Mm-hmm. And while many of us, you know, feel that uneasy feeling when we look at reborns, mm-hmm. it's important to note that they are considered a transition object and can bring comfort to people who are working through anxiety or loss. Yeah, I know. They definitely make me feel uncomfortable. Like I just, I don't know. They're, they're sort of a a weird thing, but yeah, but I get it. Right. <laughs> I get that they serve an important purpose right. for, for some people. So 
Yeah. We can't get rid of them. <laughs> is, is that? Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, I had read some articles that were like, oh, they're so creepy. Like, why are, why are we making them, you know, more, why are we continuing yeah. to make them more and more similar to people? And it's like, well, because they are helping, like they're tools yeah. for other people. Like they're not just, they aren't just making them like superhuman, like, so that way, you know, yeah, five year olds like can a, play with them. <laughs> yeah. They could be like a therapeutic right. tool. And it's like, well, while it might not be my thing, it definitely falls squarely under the like, they are not hurting me. So just let people do whatever they need to do to right. live their lives. Right. It's fine. Right. <laughs> and like, just, just be kind. <laughs> now, I mentioned earlier that the Smithsonian article did say that dolls were creepy before they made appearances in horror films. And that's true. Or I mean, I think it's true, but <laughs> that doesn't mean that Dr. Walitsky Taylor was wrong. It's likely that horror films, while not the entire reason that people are afraid of dolls, have contributed contributed to the creepy factor. I was going to say it could sort of just depend on like what you define as a doll. Like if she was referring to more, you know, dolls as children's toys or like porcelain dolls or, you know, more similar to dolls that we have today, then yeah, I think... You don't start to get a lot of the creepiness until they start to use them as props in horror films. Yeah. But you're talking about like dolls being used as ritual objects and things like that back to ancient Egypt, if not earlier. And, you know, there are things like voodoo dolls and stuff. So it's like, well, those like people would have a, a potentially a fear of that, that, you know obviously predates movies yeah right so just just depends on what you define as like a doll <laughs> okay yay for dolls i'm very happy that you finally got to tell your spooky doll stories <laughs> and i'm sure there will be more in the future <laughs> like i can't believe that you haven't requested robert the doll yet well i don't know <laughs> Now, this is on you. Now we're going to have to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I had to, so, I had to do short and spooky dolls before we did it. Okay. Then, yeah, otherwise, we, it was just going to be like, why am I even doing short and spooky dolls? Yeah, that's fine. We, we've got we've got the doll foundation laid now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So for my story, which. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, these are all wildly different stories. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a real smorgasbord, this this episode. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So I am going to talk about something called Angel's Glow, which I learned about recently and am sort of obsessed with because it's awesome. So for this story, we are going to go back to 1862 and the Battle of Shiloh, which took place in southwestern Tennessee during the American Civil War. 
There were over 16,000 soldiers that were injured during this battle, and conditions overall were very miserable. So the land in that area was swampy, and there were torrential rains during and after. So everything was presumably damp and awful, and you have a bunch of guys that have open wounds that are getting exposed to a muddy and bloody battlefield. So like basically a perfect setup for wounds to get horribly infected and cause more death. And side note, statistics say that 12% of deaths in the Union Army were due to infected wounds. You see similar numbers in the Confederate Army. So if you take you know, the total death toll of the Civil War, this would account to well over 60,000 people. So not great. And like between like infections and infectious diseases, it's like two thirds, if not three quarters of the deaths were due to that. So not good. Hygiene well, like, was what not good. Horrible way to go, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So not great, right? And if you have one of these wounds, you're obviously like probably very concerned that infection is going to set in and you'll either die or, you know, lose a limb or something. But something really strange happened to some of the injured soldiers afterwards. So as it got dark after the battle was over, they actually noticed that their wounds started to glow. And as the days passed, military surgeons noted that those that were affected by this strange phenomenon had better recovery rates. And it came to be known as angel's glow because obviously there was like sort of a religious bias to it. And they thought that, you know, it was something spiritual happening (laughs) to heal these men. Flash forward to 2001 and two high school students who were working with USDA Agricultural Research Service microbiologists had grown up hearing these stories about these glow-in-the-dark wounds, and they worked to actually come up with a scientific explanation for them and proposed that the glow was due to the presence of a bioluminescent bacterium called photorhabdus luminescence. So P-luminescence is normally found in nematodes, which I think are like flatworms. <laughs> that I think live that's right. In- Yeah, that live in soils. So it makes a lot of sense that the bacteria might find its way into the wounds of fallen soldiers on this muddy, torn up battlefield. Mm -hmm. For a little bit more background, bioluminescence in bacteria is caused by a chemical reaction in which a molecule called luciferin is oxidized, meaning it just reacts with with oxygen. hard to say fast, with the help of an enzyme called luciferase to produce energy in the form of light. So whereas like a lot of chemical reactions produce heat as like the form of energy that they release in this case produces light. So that's where we get like firefly, firefly glow and the glow of these bacteria. And as for why they've developed this bioluminescence, Scientists think that it is to help with dispersal, so meaning that the light the light makes them more visible and attractive to the organisms whose gut they inhabit. So they like 
inhabit the gut of these nematodes and kill them pretty rapidly. <laughs> so <laughs> because they glow, the nematodes are like, oh, that looks really tasty. And they get gobbled up faster. And obviously <laughs> that allows them to spread. <laughs> they get gobbled up faster. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> okay. One thing that's really cool about the photoraptus and that may have played a role may plain that's not that's right may have played a role in creating this angel's glow and in helping to heal these soldiers was that there are several strains of photorabdis that have an antibiotic effect so they are very fierce competitors with other bacteria and they secrete a compound that has antibacterial antibiotic properties basically these these guys were getting potentially getting like a natural antibiotic in their wounds that was allowing them to heal and not allowing them to be colonized by dangerous bacteria leading to sepsis and that's what have you yeah, so cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And research is ongoing. I saw a bunch of examples of papers that have been released in recent years in evaluating P. luminescence as a possible solution to antibiotic resistant bacterial infections. That's all I have to say about Angel's Glow. I just think it it's super cool. And it like the stories of it from the battle, like from that specific battle of Shiloh, and I think there are potentially other stories during the Civil War that people pass down. Like it just sounds like something supernatural, but it could like very well be a natural thing. Yeah, that's super cool. Now you're gonna tell us about some trees. I cheated. I peeked a little of this one because I saw the trees and I was like, um, that just looks like what trees do sometimes. <laughs> So, okay. So, yes, but the crooked forest <laughs> is a grove of 100, and some sources say 400, others say, no, no, there's only 100 uh, <laughs> pine trees that are located near Gryphino, West Pomerania, and Poland. And you know where Pomeranians are from? Like the dog? I, I had that thought and I like legitimately thought that I had spelled it wrong in here because I was like, that's a uh-huh. dog. But then I didn't. So I don't know. It might be. <laughs> Let's look it up. Let's look it up. I want to know. <laughs> uh, yep. They come from the Pomerania region in Northwest Poland. <gasps> there you go. Oh, cute little babies. Um. So yeah, these trees have, so it's weird because all of the trees in the area and like that particular grove have all grown in a direct Mm -hmm. 90 degree angle northward before curving up towards the sky. And um, we will post a photo in the show notes for anybody who wants to see the trees. I mean, I think they're pretty, it's pretty crazy. Like not so much just one individual tree looking that way, but the fact Mm -hmm. that all of them in that area look that way is like. A little weird, mm-hmm. I think. I don't know. Maybe you don't think it's weird. Do you not think it's weird? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> okay, I'm trying. <laughs> Hang on, okay? <laughs> Are you looking something up? Yes, because I want to send you a picture. Okay, so when I saw the picture that you have on here, like, yes, they look very weird to me. 
what I instantly thought of was soil creep. <laughs> Just funny that it's called creep, but it's like literally like creeping slowly downhill. So we learn about this slash I taught this in Geo 101. And the trees always want to be growing directly vertically, right? Like up towards the sky. Oh, yeah. But if there are like freeze thaw cycles or like the soil is is slumping slowly down a slope, then like the roots of the trees are moving, but they're still growing. So they end up with these like weird little curves in them or knees in them. So I'm going to send you a couple pictures of that. (laughs) You're about to debunk the whole mystery. So maybe not. Yeah. So I I saw your photo that you put in here and I was like, oh, well, this is just this is just soil creep and the trees are just growing this way to compensate for it. But this doesn't appear to be on a slope. And I couldn't find like any other pictures to see if like it was just a very slight slope that it could like I wouldn't expect them to be that dramatic. Yeah. I mean, I see plenty of other photos, but like to your point, I can't. I mean, I don't know if any of these are sloped. They all look pretty. They look flat to me. It looks but, pretty flat. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense because like for for soil creep to have bent these, then it would have had to be like pretty, on a hill. pretty sloped in that area. Yeah. On a hill. It's funny because everything that I read didn't even talk about that. So it could, yeah. I mean, heck it could be, I don't fucking know. You would know more than I would. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My The only thing that I think like that, that makes me qu- question that is that it, it's like on a flat surface. So unless there's like some pretty dramatic, like freeze thaw cycles or something happening here, that are like still causing the soil to move. I don't know. Anyway, go, go. Okay. (laughs) Well, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Perfect. (laughs) These trees were believed to be planted in some time in like the 1930s or early 40s. And it looks like they were about seven years old when they were first planted there. So, you know, the question is, why have the trees grown this way? And from everything I read, it seems like it's still considered an unsolved mystery. Okay. Um, But there are a lot of theories, uh, you know, as to what happened here though there doesn't really seem to be much in terms of evidence for like any of these theories yeah uh but here's what i'll say before i get into the the few that i that i wrote about or that Uh i mentioned here is that like i was shocked to not have found an art and and granted like i didn't look at every article that exists but like the few articles that i looked at i was really surprised that nobody was like it was aliens because that's where i was expecting this to go (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) um correct (laughs) so the first the first theory that i saw in several places was that the area has a unique gravitational pull that causes the trees to curve or bend as they grow. And like, first of all, not really how gravity works. (laughs) But like, even if it were, it wouldn't make sense that these were the only trees affected by it. Right. Yeah. You're telling (laughs) me like this like group of 100 trees, like specifically... Gravity is weird there. <laughs> right. So that one didn't, that one, I mean, that's really all I have to say. I don't know yeah. if you have anything to say about it. <laughs> no. 
I think that's dumb. <laughs> um, the second theory, and like for the record, that it, that's sort of like how everybody seems to feel about it. Like, you know, obviously, any yeah. scientist who's looked at it has said that. And like most of these articles are like, well, this was a theory at one point, but like, no, that didn't happen. Or yeah. no, that's not how this happened. So the second theory that I saw in a couple of places was that there was just like a really like there was really heavy snowfall, but like mm-hmm. specifically that the, the, the snow was so heavy that it would like, it's like weighed the trees down or something, causing them oh. to grow in crooked. But like, yeah. well, probably it, like it would like weight them down or bend them a little bit while the snow load was really heavy. And then like, yeah, if it thawed out really slowly, then the tree would like have to start compensating with its growth to like get back vertical. But like, wouldn't there have to be like a literal fuck ton of snow? Well, that, but also, yeah, like again, <laughs> why is it only these trees? Yeah, and that's a, that's exactly <laughs> my thought. Is like, first of all, there'd have to be like a fuck ton of snow. I would imagine that it would have to happen every year for like years and years and years mm-hmm. for it to grow that way. I mean, grow, trees don't just grow in a year, um, not that yeah. large. And then also like, but what about all the other trees and other plants yeah. in the area? Like, wouldn't they have yeah. been affected? There was a theory about German tanks flattening the trees, mm. which like, once again, that would probably have just destroyed them, if anything, or like flattened the area. Especially yeah. if they were, you know, pretty young at the time. Yeah, I think like tank treads or like whatever you call them. <laughs> the things on them. The t- they're not tires. Treads? I would. I think treads sounds good. Sure, whatever. I think like they would tear things up pretty good. So, yeah. yeah, I'm sort of with you that I feel like they would have just killed the trees, especially if they were planted. Like trees when they're seven years old are. Like, those would be some pretty big saplings by that point. So, yeah. Like, I think they would just get knocked over. Yeah. So then the most widespread theory and what I think is probably the most likely, um, well, except for your soil creep. I I don't know about the creep. I think the... I think there would have to be a hill. Also, what I thought was the most likely theory from what I read is that the trees were planted by farmers with the intention uh-huh. of manipulating their shape to use them for things like building furniture or building ships. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there are still places that do that now to, you know, so that way they have yeah. wood that's shaped a very specific way. Uh, yeah. But with this area, it, it was a really abandoned during the beginning of World War II. So anybody who would have had any answers about the trees uh, would no longer be or would likely no longer be alive to solve this mystery for us. So I think the fact that it's only a group of 100 or 400 trees, depending on who you ask, the fact that they were all planted at about the same time, like when they were the same age, like somebody did this on purpose. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) Even if that purpose was like, what if I could just make these trees grow really weird? (laughs) Yeah. That's what I want to do. I just want to grow a fuck ton of trees in one area and make them grow super weird and then like leave. (laughs) And if anyone ever asks, just be like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I've never seen those trees before in my life. It's weird. It's like they're cool looking. They're very cool looking. But like it's not like there's anything like supernatural here or like whatever. 
I just on. can't. I can't even believe that. Like, I couldn't find a supernatural explanation for it. Yeah, I. I would say unique gravitational. Pull. Well, fair enough. <laughs> I think that falls under significant levels of woo. <laughs> Signif- significant levels of woo. I like it. <laughs> the woo is significant with this with one. that one. <laughs> All right, it's salamander time. I know. Well, it's baby dragon time. (laughs) So this has come up a few times, but obviously I just like, I really love when you can connect something in folklore with science or like find a scientific explanation for it, which like fucking duh, that's the whole purpose of the show. So why am I saying it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So... I found these stories, I think I found a tweet about the Ulm that referenced the folklore and then showed a little picture of them. And I was like, well, that is adorable and I love them. So I definitely want to talk about it for a short and spooky. Uh, For this, we are based in Slovenia and in Slovenian folklore, it was believed that dragons lived beneath Earth's surface and people think that this belief probably stemmed from sightings of the Ulm, which is a type of aquatic cave salamander. So this shows up first in a specific story that's documented as part of a 15-volume encyclopedia called The Glory of the Duchy of Carniola. (laughs) But I'm going to butcher this. I got all the other pronunciations, could not find one for this dude, Uh, by Yana's... Vajkard Valvasor. We're going to go with it. I like it. Great. Um, So he was a naturalist and he published this encyclopedia in 1689 and mentioned stories that he was told of of Babby. Babby dragons. (laughs) Bobby dragons. Can't. I was so worried about having to pronounce the next words that I like forgot how to say actual words. Literally me every single episode. (laughs) Okay. Son of a bitch. He's told of baby dragons while visiting the town of Vrznica, which is near Ljubljana, which is the capital of Slovenia. And so he was there to check out the odd behavior of a spring that would flow more strongly in the morning than it would later in the day and then seem to like reset itself circa midnight every night and start flowing more strongly again. And honestly, I didn't even look up if they ever that if they ever figured that out, but probably some sort of like weird water cycle thing, like localized water cycle mm-hmm. thing happening. Anyway, so the locals at the time, though, claimed that it was because a dragon lived in the cave below it, which is called Postoina Cave, and that the dragon would shift around as the cave filled up with water, which would disrupt the flow of water to the spring in certain parts of the day or later in the day. So basically, the dragon was blocking the water for part of the day. And of course, Valvasor was very curious about why they said this. And it's because after there would be heavy rains, 
the villagers would find what they thought were baby dragons taking a trip to the surface uh, when they visited the areas near this cave and near this spring. But what they were actually seeing was the Ulm, this aquatic salamander. It is adorable. They're just baby dragons. So the Ulm looks like a stretched out or extra long version of an axolotl, which you've probably seen them. Some people keep them as pets. And these types of amphibians, so both the Ulm and the axolotl, are super interesting because they don't ever grow past their larval juvenile stage. So it's like if a toad, for example, like just stayed a tadpole forever. Mm -hmm. But they're pretty amazing. They evolved to conserve energy to an extreme level. They're totally blind. So if you look at the pictures of them, they have like no eyeballs Mm -hmm. at all. And I forgot to put this down, but I guess they, they... So they not only have organs that allow them to sense electric fields, like the Earth's electromagnetic field, but also, you know, the small electromagnetic fields generated by other animals. And they have very good underwater hearing. So that's how they hunt like, you know, other animals in the cave. They also apparently have photosensitive skin. So like they can't see light. But if you were to shine like a flashlight on their tail, they would get out of the way, which is crazy. (laughs) They can be up to about a foot long, so they're pretty small. But that's actually that actually makes them the largest cave dwelling animals in the world. Really? Yeah. So they're not everything in caves is pretty small. I think that like permanently lives in caves, you know, they can live to be over 100 years old. They only move about 16 feet per year (laughs) and can go years without eating. I saw estimates that ranged from six to up to 13 years between meals. Holy crap. Uh, Yes. Researchers who were tracking their movements, like by tagging them, once observed an Ulm who didn't appear to move from one spot for over seven years. <laughs> Which, like, side note, sounds pretty great. <laughs> the last years. I was like, please, just let me sit in one place for seven years. That'd be great. <laughs> sounds terrible. <laughs> Paige is like, no, get me out. <laughs> if you scroll down in the notes, you'll see I included... The little info, well, yeah, the little like social cute. media picture. <laughs> so it was even used in like public safety messaging about staying home during like COVID quarantine era. It says stay home and be like the Ulm. <laughs> and it talks about the one that doesn't move for seven years. Uh, but anyway, they're like tray adorable. They're little white I mean, they look like baby dragons. <laughs> like if I saw one, they really and I was like <laughs> a 17th century villager. I'd be like, yeah, that's a baby dragon. And obviously the mother dragon lives in the cave. <laughs> okay. Duh. But you may also have to put a picture of an axolotl on there because I am dying. Oh, axolotls are also cute. Although I thought it's funny. They're only like that white pinky color when they're in captivity in nature. They are like dark brown. Oh yeah. I see this here actually. For some so I reason, found that out. like on a Minecraft post. I don't understand why. Oh my I god! I think I think you can find them in Minecraft Land. Oh, okay. <laughs> Minecraft Land. <laughs> you can have them at axolotls. You can have as pets, though. But I guess like the the cave that 
Postjoina cave, mm-hmm. where sort of this original baby dragon story comes from, is it's now like a public space where you can go to like you can go to see alms and I think they have part of it set up as like an aquarium and they've been able to hatch baby ones. So it's like a whole thing, which is awesome. (laughs) But yeah, so today, like as they should, because they are adorable and amazing. um, Alms have become a very important cultural symbol for Slovenians. They even at one point had one on one of their coins from like the days before they swapped to the Euro. They are a fragile species and because most of the area's drinking water around that Pastoina cave comes from the aquifers that are part of that cave system, the ulm is an important bioindicator of the health of the ecosystem and the impact of human activity. Hmm. And that goes like way back in terms of like awareness about that, because even the villagers who told Valvasor about the baby dragons recognize their importance and would return any alms that they found like stranded outside of the cave Mm -hmm. back to the cave to be with their dragon mother because like they knew that the dragon was responsible for their water that is super cute i like this story i know we had to end on a cute one because the last two episodes that we recorded it was like oh significant bummer well (laughs) and like i have a feeling that the next two may not be the most uplifting. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps up our short and spooky Tokyo Drift episode. <laughs> Tune in for episode 45 on lab disasters. If you like this episode... Okay, it's time to shine. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready. If you liked this episode, hit subscribe and share with a friend. You can find us on TikTok at Spooky Science, Twitter and Instagram at Spooky SciPod, Facebook at Spooky Science Sisters, and at our website, SpookyScienceSisters.com. If you have any questions about previous topics or ideas for future episodes, email us at SpookyScienceSisters at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening and stay spooky. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 